Let's keep on standing as we uh, read God's word. And it comes from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Get your refill of coffee. <laughs> All right. Thing on? Yeah. Risky move not to check it earlier. But it paid off. Let's continue to live dangerously, Jeremy. Um, well, my I want to start with the question, which is, have you ever had one of these types of moments? Um, one that comes to mind, I could think of many, but one that comes to mind was a night uh, whenever there were f four couples. Um, some of our, my, my wife, Susanna, and I's very best friends. Uh, it was just one of those nights where we started hanging out early in the evening. None of us had kids yet, which enabled this to begin, to begin with. Um, started hanging out early in the evening, hanging out at a friend's apartment, um, shared a bottle of wine, ended up going out onto this little deck that they had at their apartment complex. A couple of us were sitting, a couple of us were standing, kind of staring out over a Portland sunset uh, down in inner southeast Portland. The trees were bright green as they, as they often are in the summer in Portland. I mean, the next few months are the reason most of us live here in terms of weather. Like, you know, you know how beautiful the summer is here. And it was just one of those perfect nights. Uh, it was magic hour, everything was aglow. Um, conversation turned from fun and sweet and silly to serious and heavy and uh, even theological at times. Um, the friendships were deepened. Uh, everything just coalesced into one of those moments where you just look back on, not for, you can't pick apart any particular reason why it was so sweet and so good. It just was. And some of those families, some of those couples are, actually all of them are part of this church. Well, one of them moved away. Um, but it's one of those types of nights that people still look back on. Remember that night when? Have you had one of those? Have you had one of those? The question I'm going to start with is, what did this have to do with God, if anything? Or put more broadly, what is the relationship between these deep joys in life that make up some of our best stories that we tell and retell and retell, some of our favorite memories that are in interconnected with some of our hopes and some of our dreams? What's the connection between those things and the God of Christianity, if anything? Some might say, these types of stories, these types of moments are simply distractions. You know, when you give yourself over to a moment like that, you're sort of, you've, you've distracted yourself from the main thing, the things of God, the things of the Bible, the things of theology or whatever else. Um, push that a little further and you might say, these, are the, these things are idols. They're, they're simply idols. They're things that are, are occupying kind of the central place that our God is meant to occupy. You push that a little further, and some, it's not, not as common you'll find this, but just say these types of moments, they're just evil for their, for their capacity to distract. And a moment can be any of those things, um, depending on what we do with it in our hearts. But at their best, rightly understood, rightly situated, what I want to argue is that these moments are graces. And I don't just mean like from the universe or from, you know, the person next to you or whatever, I mean graces from God. They are gifts. They are undeserved blessings. 
that he freely bestows upon us, opportunities to see his goodness, to see his love, yes, his grace, to see his beauty, his truth, ultimately to see him. The series that we're going to start now for a number of weeks, a few months actually, um, is, is called God of Every Good Thing. That's what we've titled it. You'll see that slide a lot up there. And what we want to do is to try to explore some of what I think are underexplored theological concepts like common grace and general revelation and some others, but not in a way that's textbooky and whatever, in a way that is practical, devotional, spiritual. But more simply than that, what we're going to do is we're going to explore the biblical idea that God is the source of every legitimately good thing in this world. And that each of these things are instances and evidences of his grace towards the people that he loves. James 1.17 tells us every, listen to this, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So a number of things are going to happen, hopefully, for us as we progress through this. One is we, we hope to sort of break down some of, I, I mean this, the, I guess there's a way you could overstate this, but break down the sacred-secular divide that often hangs in our imagination for Christians. That there are sort of good things out there in the world that are just sort of secular goods there and of their own that have nothing to do with God. Humans have constructed these. God didn't have anything to do with it. We've built this ourselves. I want you to destroy that idea. I'm going to argue, we're going to argue over the coming months that that's, just, that's not the right way to think about things. We're going to be more sympathetic to the theologian Abraham Kuyper, who had many problems, but he had this one beautiful quote that sticks with me. He said, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And the spirit of that is not necessarily that he's this like tyrant saying, all this stuff belongs to me, although he's the right, rightful owner of everything as the sovereign creator God. But the idea is that it's all under his domain of care and lordship and love and provision. He's the Lord of everything. There's not some realm out there that he just doesn't have access to, that he's not holding together by his will. So, Question, what does the enjoyment of mountains or the cycle of the seasons or the vastness of the universe or human relationships or our own embodied experiences or sleep and rest or good food or good films and books and poetry, satisfying work, science and discovery, even the most mundane things of life, what do they have to do with God? What do they have to do with Christian discipleship? What do they have to do with conforming our lives to Jesus, which is our end goal as Christians? We're going to see again that in each of these things, in every good thing, if it's really genuinely good, and not everything is good, friends, hope that's obvious as well, but we will find a point of contact with the God of the Bible. Not that we find God in these things, that's quickly, I know some of you are probably feeling the tension, like, are we about to go full pantheist here or something? And we're not. It is not that we find God himself in things. It's not that the things themselves are God or, or even a substitute for God. People, they can become those things for people. It's not that we celebrate the gifts over the gift giver, but it's to recognize the gifts as places where we find connection with him. Every single time, the giver of every good gift, if we have the eyes to see. It's to see every good thing we encounter, not as the product of random happenstance, 
but as a gift intentionally given by this God who loves you. I think for any of us, these ideas, this cluster of ideas can become completely transformative for how we follow Jesus in the day-to-day moments of everyday life. So we're going to jump in. And we're going to begin the only place I think we possibly can, which is in those first phrases of the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, Genesis 1-1, which Joel read for us. So pray with me, and then we're going to, we're going to dive in. Father, um, these are lofty things. Um, we're after sort of a, a Christian theory of everything here, Lord. We're after an understanding of what exactly you want us to understand our relationship to be to all the things that constitute our lives, Lord. We pray that you lead us into truth, into biblical truth, Lord, not into fanciful ideas or assumptions or guesswork. Uh, if, if, if we're rooting all this in that, Lord, then it's useless. We should just pack it up and do something else, Lord. But Father, we want the truths, I, I believe these incredible truths that you've laid across your scriptures from Genesis to Revelation to sing for us today and over the coming months, Lord. That we would have the eyes to see your beauty and your goodness and your generosity all around us, Lord. And that this isn't incidental to what it means to follow you. It has the chance to, to, be, to, to make the everyday living of life an experience of deep, significant worship of you. Not of things, Lord, but of you. That's what we want. So help us, Lord. We, we, we need your help desperately. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll begin uh, in the beginning. In the beginning. We're going to spend the first three weeks of this series just in Genesis 1 through 3 to set the table uh, for all of this. But I should just give you fair warning that this isn't going to be, this isn't a series on Genesis. So uh, I'm not going to be doing kind of a typical exposition of these chapters where we're trying to give kind of basically all the essential things that you need to know from these passages and so on and so forth. We're looking at these, at these chapters specifically through the lens of what they have to say about the question at hand. So there will be lots of questions about Genesis that we're like, well, how, you know, tell me how old the earth is, Cameron. Just tell me how many years. It's not this series. As if I could tell you how many years old the earth is anyway. First, let's begin with this first phrase. In the beginning, God. Simple enough. The first verse, the first phrase of your Bible wants to talk to you about the beginning. The beginning of creation, the beginning of the world. And this word beginning, scholars are virtually unanimously agreed, it refers to a period of time. And so therefore, some argue that this is a period of time described before what gets described in the rest of the chapter. Uh, Therefore, there's some sort of gap between verse 1 and verse 2, or potentially between verses 1 and 2, and then what follows. But regardless, uh, or that it's, it's simply describing, it's a summary of what he's about to show you in the rest of the chapter. We don't have to get, make a decision about that for our purposes right now. Good scholars argue all across that spectrum. But he's talking about a period of time in which God created. Um, either way, however you take this, God's presence is there before the beginning and initiating the beginning. This, it, notice it doesn't say in the beginning God was created. 
when we, when we stop and say, in the beginning, God, you go, oh, God's there. He's up to something before his act of creation, which is the first act we, we get to see here at the beginning of the Bible. So God's presence is there before the beginning, and it initiates the beginning, and it begs a crucial question. Have you ever asked this before? What was he doing before the beginning? What's he up to? What is he doing? And that might seem like a trivial question. It might seem like a silly question or one of those like, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Or one of, I don't know, those silly kind of like, what are you talking about? But it's important. What God was doing before creation, I think is deeply important because what he was doing before creation illustrates who he is in and of himself before he ever had creation and humans and all of our messes to deal with. Who just is he in his fundamental essence? We can learn that in other ways, but one of the important pieces of that puzzle is what was he up to before? So who do you imagine God to be? Who is he fundamentally before he has a world to manage and human sin to deal with and all of this stuff? There are a lot of bad conceptions out there. And I should just say out of the gate, I was so inspired. Some of us in this room, we did a, a book club. Let's see, who was in there? Who did Delighting in the Trinity with us? Rachel did. Joel, Luke, just the four of us. The four and the proud. Um, it's a book we have over there on the bookshelf. We'll continue to stock it. It's one of my favorite books. It's a short little book of theology. But uh, so much of, of this sermon was birthed out of inspiration, and some of it is organizing Michael Reeves' ideas. So I just want to footnote all of this out of the gate. Very little of this is original to me. I'm following Michael Reeves and some others on this stuff. But Reeves lays this out. He, he, he talks about options for who is God fundamental, and he gives us some bad ideas. He says, first, there's the idea of the, sing the singular God, the God who is one from eternity past. Before he created, there's the single solo God. What's the problem with this? The problem with this God is that before he created, he was alone. And if he was alone, he was loveless. He was alone and loveless from eternity past. And he traces out this idea that Reeves does that, okay, if God is alone and loveless, then what the idea that you have is that this is a God, whatever he was doing was kind of about private self-gratification private self-gratification. There was no one for him to love. Therefore, how could he in his essence be a God of love as we, as we understand the Christian God to be, as the Christian Bible declares him to be? Furthermore, some then take that idea and say, well, fundamentally what he is is the creator and the ruler of everything. And that sounds right. Our God, the Christian God, is the creator and the ruler of everything, yes. But fundamentally, if you make that his fundamental idea, then what he needs, he desperately needs to be who he is, is a creation to rule. So whatever he was doing before creation, he was incomplete in some sense. He could not be fully himself. He was yearning and longing and waiting to be the thing that he fundamentally is, which is a creator and a ruler. Reeves goes on to say, if this is God, then he needs us. And he's like pitifully weak in that sense. You take that idea a little bit further, and this is, this is another uh, example that, that Reeves gives, is he talks about the ancient Babylonian god Marduk. And in their creation myth, he created hum humankind so that gods can have slaves. He's alone, he needs something to rule and to rule cruelly. He needs slaves to come into existence so him and the other gods can rule over them. Those are some options. 
that you have before you, just who God was before he created. The question is, does the Bible give an answer? If you're looking at your Bible, Genesis 1-1, it sure doesn't look like it, does it? It sure doesn't look like there's an answer. But you flip ahead to the Gospel of John, chapter 17 in your New Testament. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying the night he was betrayed, as he's praying for his disciples and he's pouring his heart out to God, he says this, he said, listen to this, the glory you have given me, he's speaking to God the Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom they have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. Okay, listen in. Listen in here. Because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus, if you're a Christian, hopefully you believe that he is the incarnate, eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, one who was there. Colossians tells us all things were made through him. He was the agent of creation. Uh, this was before he incarnated in the human body, of course. But this is this Jesus one who is eternally present with God. He's, he's taking us back to before Genesis 1-1, and he's giving us this little sliver, this window into what God was doing. And what does it say? He was a father loving a son. Before anything else, before he made a thing, God, this is the beauty of the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what that whole little book is about, helping us see why it's so important, not just as a, well, that's an interesting little theological puzzle, but to see the like relational depth and beauty of this. Before God made anything or anyone or anything else from eternity past, he was a loving father with a loved, beloved son. For God, for the Christian God to be a God of love, for, for like John to write in the book of 1 John that God is love, you need the Trinity. He didn't need you or me or anyone else to be loving in his essence. It's just who he is. And he's already organized himself in and of the, within the Trinity to be one, to, to have a fundamental identity as Father. And I know when we start speaking about God as Father, we, what we do is we typically import all of the shortcomings that we experience like as fathers and as mothers and as like with our parent, our human parents. We go, ooh, I don't know if I want God to be quite like that. We've got it just backwards. God is the one true, perfect, life-giving, self-giving Father under which human relationships are brokenly striving to, to model ourselves after. Before the foundation of the world, God was a father loving a son. So what we see is that God was not alone. The doctrine of the Trinity, for all its complexity, it speaks of, yes, God is one, but he is also three. He's three persons in one God. He's a father, which means he has this, this nature that's eternally generative. We don't know how all this stuff works, and I know it's, we're, it's Sounds like we're getting into just weird, wild speculation, but we just have to take it and see the beauty of it. The eternally begotten Son is there, 
So somehow within God, he's eternally generating this relationship. He's overflowing with love. There's a father, an eternally begotten son, in a relationship of self-giving love that isn't dependent on anything else to give him that identity. That's just who he is. So here, summarize all this in one statement. Before God ever created, he was a father loving a son, a son loving a father, a spirit of perfect loving communion. That's just who he is. There is no other God like this in any other religion, friends. Okay. So in the beginning, God did what? The next point is that he created. He created. And Genesis 1 and 2 focuses on God's creative acts, primarily of bringing order to chaos. If you read on, you'll see in verse 2, it talks about these formless void waters. Uh, things are kind of chaotic and crazy. And the whole narrative of Genesis 1 and then in 2 as well that recounts the primarily story of, of human creation, of God creating humans. It's emphasizing bringing order and organization and function and formation and beauty to this disordered and chaotic state. The idea of God creating something from nothing is, is implicit here, and it's made explicit in Colossians 1, Hebrews 11, lots of biblical passages. But what Genesis 1 wants to highlight is his organization, his, his bringing order to this chaotic scene. And so what we have to understand then is that if God's creating and he is who we've just described him to be, then what we have in this act of creation, this initial act of creation, is his fatherliness spilling out into more. He didn't need the creation to be who he is, yet you think of it rather as him just being so abundantly full of love that it of course makes perfect sense that he would then want to share that with more. He would want to create a creation that on which he could pour out more of his love and his glory. He could, he could share more of himself with more, even than just the Trinity. Jeremiah 2.13 describes, God describes himself as the fountain of living waters. You can just imagine, the theologians talk a lot about God as just this fountain overflowing with generosity and outward affection. And that's what we have in creation. So, so the act of creation is not for God to create primarily, you know, subjects of, over which to rule. Though he is our ruler. Don't get it twisted. But it's to share his love with creatures that, that can experience his glory. This is a God who fundamentally is a God who gives. He's a God who gives. And then the last phrase to look at here is the heavens and the earth. So, you know, you could translate this a number of ways. Uh, perhaps the most literal translation is the skies and the land, which is probably just a way to think of from the ancient, Hebrew, from the ancient writer's perspective, the things above and the things below that I'm standing on. And everything in between. It's understood that in this that's called a merism in ancient Hebrew. It's, it's including everything in between. So the whole scope of what exists. What you can see above and what you see below is created. 
And we're going to read on, we're going to look at this next week, uh, that he goes on to, to create all kinds of good things. He declares them specifically to be good. You remember that. So all kinds of good things that populate what's above and what's below. Good things to be received and enjoyed and cultivated, even for the better, by his people. So the image we should get, when you think about Genesis 1-1, and we'll talk about the following verses as well, is not some sort of stagnant God who's, yes, I'm going to create so that I can rule this thing. You imagine a father creating out of his abundance. And you imagine him creating Adam and Eve, these first humans, and saying, I've got something for you. Look at this. Look at this. Enjoy this. Oh my gosh. He, and then we're going to, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but he, he gives them the authority to be his under rulers. That's their task. Subdue this place, make it even better. Take the raw materials that are good in and of themselves and create yourselves out of them. Build things, nurture this, develop it, grow it, shepherd it, care for it, steward it. So in his creation, in his creation, can just imagine like a good parent taking their child and saying, I want you to see this. And he can do what none of us can say to our kids, which is, I made this for you. For you to enjoy in relationship with me. Not in and of itself, but always tied to relationship with him. More on this next week. That's the fundamental idea I want to leave you with. It's short, it's sweet but that the pictures we get of God in the earliest moments that we get any kind of window into are of creation and just before creation where God is a, in a relationship within the Trinity of self-giving love, Father and Son, and that that changes everything about how we understand his relationship to his world that he's made. I hope this is dispelling maybe some stories that you have in your head around how all of this works. But of course... This is going to become a theme of every one of our sermons as we get into this. this you know, the biblical story doesn't just end in Genesis 1-1 or chapter 2. It goes into chapter 3 with the fall. Of course, everything gets messed up. Humans rebel against God. They introduce sin and evil and attendantly with death and curse to the world. And all these evil things. Injustice enters. On, so on and so forth. We're not left in paradise. Humans screw it up. Who is God in that situation? He's the same God. He's the same God. He is still the self-giving, loving Father who loves a son. But we find that his self-giving love finds its fullest and greatest expression in the stories we just read about over the last couple of, couple of weeks in sending his son to the cross. Remember, if this is who God is, suddenly, our, as we understand what happened on the cross, it suddenly becomes even more complicated and more tragic and more beautiful. If God is fundamentally this kind of God in this kind of relationship within the Trinity, suddenly listen to our, you know, the most cliched, overstated, over-referenced verse for good reason that we all know, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You hear it? The son that in his core of cores, he loves. 
in order to rescue and redeem humanity. He gives that son. The loving father gives his son. The beloved son, in some sense, giving his father. Willfully subjecting himself, not my will, Lord, but yours, to the horrors of the cross, the forsakenness of the cross, all the things we've been talking about recently. For what? In order to redeem the heavens and the earth. We're told that explicitly in the book of Romans. Creation itself groans for redemption. But the heavens and the earth's redemption is tied to the redemption of people. Humans, the people who stewarded them. He gave his son in order to redeem the people that had turned their back on him, that had rejected him, that had sinned against him, that had stumbled far away from him. Yet he did not give up on them. Even in a world as broken as ours is, even with people as willfully rebellious as we all are, he is still at bottom a father who loves a son and whose relationship to his world is one of self-giving, sacrificial love. And we see it more clearly than anywhere else than on the cross of Calvary. It's just who he is, friends. That phrase, heavens and the earth, I don't know why, I didn't put the verse up, I don't know why, it's just habit. I'm always used to having the verse up there, so just look at that nice, beautiful picture there. Um, even in, most scholars agree, there is something beautiful and poetic and intentional about the mention of the heavens and earth and how the picture that we conclude the Bible with in the final chapters of Revelation, the last chapters of the New Testament, focus on the new heavens and the new earth. And so even from the first page of the Bible, we're already, we have this cosmic tie-in to the very last pages and the story that God promises, like all that the messed up stuff that's happened here, it will be redeemed. This planet will be redeemed. This world will be redeemed. It will be perfected. It will be uh, fully reinstated to its glory and even beyond. What started as a simple garden will conclude with a garden with this gigantic city with the the spoils of the world coming and going. It talks about the kings and the glories of all these human cultures bringing their wares in and out. It's just this glorious, beautiful picture. So we have a God who gives in creation. We have a God who gives at the cross in redemption. We have a God who gives, will give again in the new creation. All that's been lost will be restored and even better. So I want to just conclude with this. If we start here with this conception of God, which I think is the biblical conception of God, that's what I'm trying to argue for. If we have this conception of God and his purposes in creating the universe, everything is different. And you can just start to let the logic of this kind of infect in a good way. Everything maybe that you've assumed about God. Suddenly you can't look at a sunset or a newborn child or a beautiful garden or the light beaming in through, no, there's no light beaming in through the windows in here today, but some days there, there will be, a month from now, there will be light beaming in through these windows. You can't, suddenly you can't look at these things without becoming aware that these aren't just arbitrary accidents, but there is a good, giving God, a loving Father, who has supplied these, not arbitrarily, not incidentally, but for us to enjoy 
for us to find him through. We can't enjoy the things, the good things of this world without becoming aware of our good and beautiful and self-giving God. So, that's an intro. Let's let it be an intro. Let's not belabor it. Next week we pick up, we go further in Genesis. For now, let's pray to this good God.